looking at Acts chapter 2 and get a little more into this passage. I'd like to begin by just asking the question, what are you devoted to? Now, I can tell you one thing that all of us are devoted to, and that is eating. We're all devoted to eating because uh, we know it's essential for life. And it's interesting, in Job uh, 23, Job says, I have treasured the, the, wor- the words of his mouth more than my necessary food, which means he was just as or more devoted to the word of God as he was to eating. And so we all eat every day. We know it's necessary. That's why we eat every day. And what we're going to be talking about and start talking about today is very much in light of the idea of being devoted to eating, uh, not physical eating, but spiritual eating. Um, I've entitled this um, series, The Great Reset. And as I've mentioned, there are three aspects of that idea that I've been trying to emphasize. One is there's a push in our own day and time to do what they're calling the Great Reset. And it's a push by global, uh, political, and corporate leaders to uh, move our world in a certain direction and to try to address a lot of different problems in the process. And it's really one manifestation of how the world seeks to create a utopia, a heaven on earth apart from God. And so that is one aspect of the reality that we're living in, that we're living in a time when there are people talking very publicly about wanting to do that and seeking to move us in that direction. We know biblically that that's not going to happen. But we also know biblically that there is a great reset coming, and it's called the return of Christ, when Jesus himself will come back and usher in heaven on earth. That is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And the way that we uh, address the issue of the world trying to reset things and create heaven on earth, and the way we respond to the truth that one day God is going to create heaven on earth is through what is talked about in Acts chapter 2, which is repentance, which is a kind of personal reset. Where as I reorient my life around what's really important, around the kingdom of God. And so what I want to do, and I've been working toward this, is to look at what we see in Acts chapter 2 and talk about what does it look like to reorient our lives in light of the kingdom of God and the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus could say in Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's in the context of worry. Don't worry about what you will eat or drink, but be really concerned about living in light of the coming kingdom. What we're going to talk about um, for the next several weeks is what you could call a a summary of what it looks like to live a life of repentance. You know, Martin Luther could say the Christian life is a, is a life of repentance. Our whole Christian life, in a sense, is a, re, a repentance of sorts. It's a change of mind that results in a change of life. It's a reorienting of our lives around what is really important in light of what God says in his word. And there are five things we're going to talk about. One is communication, that our lives need to be oriented around the gospel, speaking it and holding on to it. And that's where we'll start today. The second thing is about communion. 
It's about orienting our lives around pursuing communion with God, both publicly and privately. The third thing is that we are to orient our lives around community, that we're to share our lives and our gifts in the local church. The fourth thing is we're to orient our lives around compassion. We're to seek to meet the needs of people around us. And finally, and this is an odd word, but we're orient our lives around what you might call common grace roles or commonality, which means that there are things the Bible tells us about serving well in my family, in my workplace, and in my world that is to shape the way I orient my life. And we're going to talk about that because those five things are a kind of summary of what a repentant life looks like. And it's a way of answering the question, how do we fulfill the Great Commission? Because that's what the book of Acts is about. And it's also a way of answering the question, how do I prepare for all the changes that might be coming in our country? What if things do get harder? What if we do suffer persecution like we've never experienced before in this country? How will I be prepared for that? And that picture that we see uh, here in the book of Acts and in the New Testament, of those five major areas will help us think through what kind of life will be prepared whatever comes our way. Uh, I've heard one man preach a sermon recently where he talked about the fact that in China, they're especially using isolation to persecute believers. They're pulling them away from the the, uh, community of faith. They're isolating them from their Bibles, and they're just making them live alone. And his whole sermon was wrapped around how can you get prepared if somebody puts you in solitary confinement for years? How will you be prepared for that? And that's really my heart, too, is I want us to be prepared for whatever comes. It may not get to that point in our lifetime, but it might. And if it does, how do we get prepared for that? I read another article this week where someone was talking about the fact we often kind of um, um, maybe um, water down the issues of persecution by saying, you know, uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it's true. The church grows through persecution. Sometimes we don't talk about the fact that a lot of people walk away from Christ through persecution. A lot of people have tremendous struggles and scars and wounds as a result of persecution. And so we don't want to forget that persecution is a mixed bag. When it comes, yes, God uses it to grow the church, but people walk away. People have tremendous struggles under persecution. Um, We've been talking a lot about the whole idea of critical theory, critical race theory, and that kind of thing. Under that kind of worldview... Christianity is an oppressor. There are only two groups, oppressors and oppressed. And the oppressed need to be liberated. The oppressors need to be taken down. Christianity is one of the oppressors. That's the world in which we live. That's the the narrative that's being preached in our country right now. And if you look at the, the agenda of the Great Reset, one of their agendas is LGBTQ plus rights and freedoms. And Christianity stands in the way of that. There's no doubt about it that Christianity speaks against it. And from their perspective, it is hate speech. 
that ought to be eliminated. And so we just have to realize that there's so much going on in our world that isn't unique to us in one sense, but it's unique to us as a country in that um, the rise of anti-Christian rhetoric and anti-Christian actions is noticeable, more noticeable than ever before. And yet the believers in the book of Acts experience the same thing. And so God has given us a picture of what it looks like to live faithfully under these circumstances, however difficult it might be. And so today I want to talk about the first thing, which is communication, which is speaking and holding fast to the word of God or the gospel that God calls us to communicate. Some of you may remember Bill Gothard. Uh, When I was growing up, Bill Gothard had a big ministry, and I went to several of his conferences, and he liked to talk about uh, life message. You need a life message. And uh, I don't even remember all that he meant by life message, but the idea that my life should have a life message is very biblical, regardless of what Bill Gothard thought about it. Because in Hebrews 11 it says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Which means he spoke while he was alive. His life spoke, his life of faith spoke while he was alive, and even after he died, his life of faith still spoke. And so the question is, what will my life speak as I live and after I'm gone? What will be my life message? And that's why the idea of communication is at the heart of what it means to be a believer. So in Acts chapter 2, what we see is, um, in the book of Acts, well, let me just back a point. Um, The book of Acts is about how the church was committed to the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is about being witnesses to Christ under persecution, through pain, as well as in the face of temptations to pleasure and worldliness. And if you read the whole book, it features Peter and Paul. A lot of the book is about Peter and Paul, about those two apostles. The other apostles uh, don't get much airtime. And there are, it, there are some snapshots of the local church in there, and one of these snapshots is in Acts chapter 2. But what we want to do is we want to lay our lives beside the lives of the believers in Acts and ask ourselves the question, how does this describe or not describe me? How does this describe or not describe my heart and my life? So let me read for us, beginning in verse 41. It says, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. If you look at verse 42, 
I want to focus on the very first part of that verse where it says, they, meaning the believers, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. There are three questions I have that I want to try to answer for us. Number one, why were they devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching? What was the teaching that they were devoted to? And finally, how are we to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? What should that look like in our lives? Just real brief answers to those questions. Why were they doing this? Well, part of the answer is because we live in a fallen world that's filled with soul-destroying and soul-damning lies or love-destroying and soul-damning lies. This world is filled with lies, and we need to be delivered from it. And it's the truth, which is called here the teaching of the apostles, that God uses to deliver us. Now, what was that? We'll talk about this more later on, but it focused on the coming kingdom of God and the fact that Jesus has done a finished work for us, and he now rules and reigns over everything. Jesus is king, And he's coming back. And you need to be prepared for it. And there's good news that he offers mercy and grace to sinners. And that is at the heart of the the good news of the apostles. And then finally, how do we respond to that or how do we devote ourselves to that? We have to internalize it and externalize it. And we'll talk about what that means. And so the first thing is, why were they devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching? We live in a fallen world. Um, If you read through the book of Acts, there are two major stories. One is that relate to this, especially in Acts 15, there's the Judaizer problem. The Judaizer problem is there are people coming in and telling Christians, you have to not only believe in Jesus, but you have to do certain things to be saved, which was a lie of major proportions, a a soul-damning lie. There was also the story in Acts chapter 17 where Paul goes into Athens and he looks around and he sees all the idols. And he begins preaching saying, I see that you guys are very religious. But I also see an idol that is uh, called to the unknown God. And I'm here to tell you who that unknown God, the true God, really is. And so in the church, so to speak, and even and outside the church, we have lies that we have to deal with. Um, there was a New York Times article just in February of this year entitled, How the Biden Administration Can Help Solve Our Reality Crisis. Some of you may have heard about this. Uh, the the um, Subtitle to that is, These Steps, Experts Say, Could Prod More People to Abandon the Scourge of Hoaxes and Lies. And so you read through the article, and what they're talking about is that those that are arguing against certain things like vaccines or arguing um, you know, that the election was uh, rigged or other kinds of things are basically uh, being fed misinformation. And that misinformation is a threat to the unity of our country. And therefore, the Biden administration, the government, needs to do something to make sure people are not misled through misinformation. And big tech is one important way you need to shut down 
misinformation. And we've already begun to see how big tech is trying to shut down what they consider misinformation. One of the suggestions in that article was they need to appoint a reality czar. They said, several experts I spoke with recommended that the Biden administration put together a cross-agency task force force to tackle disinformation and domestic extremism, which would be led by something like a reality czar. The idea is we need the government to manage the flow of information in our country so that people aren't misled. Now, I agree with the the idea that we need to discern between truth and lies. The problem is when the government gets to determine what the truth is that we get to hear. That is the problem. But as Christians, we should be very concerned about the truth. Um, In our day, the issue of racism is a huge deal. And it's dividing our country. And there's no doubt that there are lies on both sides of the equation um, some of the lies are, you know, um, long-standing. Uh, one of them, back around the time of the Civil War, um, there were Christians who would argue that because of the curse of Ham, uh, the present condition of the African is inevitable. All efforts to extinguish black slavery are idle. It's a quote. The idea that Christians argued, or some Christians argued, around the time of the Civil War that the curse of Ham, which is in the Old Testament, uh, was actually dark skin, and it was an indication that you were meant to be enslaved. That was God's ordination for your life. And, and there were Christians, or at least people who professed to be Christians, uh, who embraced that kind of lie. That was a lie. That was, that was something in the church where the scripture was taken and twisted, just like the Judaizers were taking the scripture and twisting it to say we have to have some kind of works in order to be right with God. In our day and time, you even have Christians. This one's, this person is a Christian professor uh, who wrote a prayer that's in a best-selling novel right now, or best-selling devotional, rather, I should say. And the prayer begins, Dear God, please help me to hate white people. Now, obviously... Uh, you can't find that in the teaching of the apostles. You can't find either one of those things about black people uh, being consigned to slavery or darker-skinned people being uh, consigned to slavery. You can't find that in the teaching of the apostles. You can't find hatred for white people or uh, any other color people in the Bible according to the teaching of the apostles. And that's why it's crucial for us in our day and time to say, what is the teaching of the apostles? What, what is the teaching of Christ? Because the apostles taught what uh, Christ taught. And therefore, we have to evaluate everything in light of what we see in Scripture. The reality is, truth sets free, but lies enslave. We've talked about the whole issue of how they train elephants from a very young age. They tie them up um, to a a pole, and they struggle against it, and they're not able to break free. But when they grow up to be 2,000-plus pounds, uh, they can still be tied to that pole with one little rope because they still think that they can't break free. 
They're, they're bound by lies. And so where the lies are coming from, we need to be set free for those lies. Whatever side we hear lies coming from, whether it's within the church or outside the church, we need to be set free from that. And that's what Jesus tells us. He says um, in John 8, he says, if you continue in my word, and that's the same idea as what we see in Acts 2, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We also can see in, in Romans 1.16 that Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We're saved through the truth. We have to be set free from lies, from the lie that I can be good enough to be accepted by God on my own. To be uh, delivered from the lie that happiness is found in this world and the things of this world apart from God. I have to be uh, delivered from the lie that I know best for my own life. Those are all lies that I have to be set free from through the power of God and the truth of the gospel. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul could say that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. If we aren't devoted to the truth, the gospel, the teaching of the apostles, the foundations are gone. There, there is no other foundation. Nobody else is going to be committed to it. And that's why we truly need to be. The idea of being devoted to the um, apostles' teaching, the idea of devotion there is to be strong towards. strong, So strong that you will not let it go. It's the idea of a tree in a storm that no matter how hard the winds blow, it's not going to loosen its hold on the ground. It's not going to be shaken from its roots. It's holding on no matter what happens. Well, I just want to give you a little taste before we're done here this morning of how this is talked about in the book of Acts, about the idea of the importance of the teaching of the apostles, the word of God, the gospel, and how the believers um, thought about it and talked about it. If you want to, you can just turn here and we'll just walk our way through it. In Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So at the very beginning of the book of Acts, it's very clear that the vision that we have as Christians is a vision for communication. That's what a witness does. A witness bears testimony to something. It, he communicates something. And so at the very beginning, we have this version of what you might call the Great Commission, where Jesus says, you're going to be enabled by the Holy Spirit to communicate. And what you're to communicate is me. You're going to talk about me, who I am, what I did, what I'm doing, what I'm going to do, and I want you to do that no matter what comes. And I want you to do it around the world, locally and internationally. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we see that the beginning of the church was the result of Peter doing that, bearing witness to Jesus. So it says, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And then in Acts 2.42, we just read 
we get the idea of what is foundational to living to please God. So if we're brought into the church through the word of God, how are, how are we supposed to live? We're supposed to live in devotion to that very word. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching so that Paul could say in Romans 12 that we are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And then he, he names one part of the body especially. He says that we are not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what he's saying is, if you want to truly present your life to God, you have to present your mind to God. That's why you have to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. You have to be devoted to the truth so that our minds can be renewed, so that we can see things from God's perspective, so that we don't get deceived by the great reset narrative of the world around us. And we aren't given over to the lies that we hear in so many ways. If you go on to Acts chapter 4, verses 29 through 31, it talks about how the congregation prays for boldness in speaking the word. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. This was after Peter and John had healed the lame man and they arrested them and they were forbidden to speak and teach in the name of Jesus. And so Peter and John go back to the church and they get together and they have this prayer meeting and they pray that God would give them confidence to speak the word under those circumstances. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. and They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. That's exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit so that you can be my witnesses. And it says there they were filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness, which means they were testifying to Jesus, even in that situation where they were threatened with boldness. If you go into Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, the context is the widows, some of the widows weren't receiving their daily uh, rations, and they took care of that issue. They showed compassion. They served them. And it says, the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. So you see the connection there. The word of God spread and the disciples increased. There's a connection there that's running through um, the book of Acts about the importance of the word. In Acts chapter 8, in the first four verses, right after uh, Stephen testifies uh, to the religious leaders about Jesus and even sees him standing at the right hand of the Father, they stone him and kill him. And it says in verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Paul, excuse me, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now, it's very clear from verse uh, 1 
that they're accepting the apostles. Not that the apostles stopped preaching the word, but they're focusing on those who weren't the apostles, were scattered because of the persecution, and they preached the word. That doesn't mean they got behind a pulpit. The word for preach there means to bring good news. They'll go around telling people the good news of who Jesus is and what he did. And you can do that over coffee. You can do that in your backyard as you talk over your fence. Uh, You don't have to do it uh, behind a pulpit. It's not talking about that. They weren't going into churches, per se, and preaching. Wherever they lived and wherever wherever they worked, in light of their being scattered, they told people, I've got some good news for you. I've got some very, very good news for you. And his name is Jesus. In Acts 8, verse 35, uh, we have um, Philip opening his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And that's talking about the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading Isaiah 53 and wondering who is being talked about. And it says Philip was brought there miraculously, joined his chariot and began from that very scripture to tell him about Jesus. And there's a sense in which God wants us to do just that. Wherever we find people and whatever truth they might be interacting with, whether it's true or not, preach Jesus. Bring the good news of Jesus into that situation. It's interesting in Acts chapter 11, if you look at verses 13 through 15, Cornelius calls for Peter, and um, Peter goes and preaches the gospel, and then he comes back after Cornelius and his house have been saved, and he's giving a report, and it says in verse 13, and he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. Isn't that interesting? That God, through an angel, tells Cornelius, contact Peter so that he can tell you something so that you can be saved. Which tells me that God works that way tells me that he wants to use you and me to tell people something. Why? So that they can be saved. It doesn't say anything about how great Peter's preaching was or how how he just presented the presentation of the gospel so wonderfully. Actually, he didn't even get through it. He just started speaking the truth about Jesus and the Holy Spirit fell on them. So it wasn't like he had a great invitation at the end and, and had a great closing argument. And overcome all their arguments. He just says the Holy Spirit fell on them as he told them the truth. That's very encouraging to me. Very encouraging to me that God works that way. If you go on to Acts chapter 12 verse 24, it talks about the fact that um, after James was killed and Peter was arrested and then delivered, that's the story where Peter shows up at, I think it's Rhoda's house and knocks on the door and the, the um, maidservant goes and sees Peter and, and runs back. And they're praying, you know, they're having this prayer meeting and saying, oh Lord, deliver Peter, deliver Peter. The maid comes back and says, hey, Peter's at the door. And they say, you're crazy. 
That's also encouraging to me. That God answers prayer when my faith is about that small. That whenever he answers the prayer, I can't believe he's answered it. You're kidding me. We're praying for Peter to be let go. And God actually let him go? No. Can't believe that. God, God is merciful. So don't ever doubt uh, what God will do through your week and my week prayers. Uh, we may be surprised when he actually answers them. So we see that uh, taking place there, and it says in verse 24 of Acts 12, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. What that means is it continued to to spread and to bear fruit. It continued to spread and bear fruit. We see uh, in the uh, missionary ministry of Paul in Acts 13, it says the word of the Lord, verse 49, the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. In Acts 14.3, it says, Therefore they spent a long time there speaking, bold, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. It says they spoke boldly with reliance upon the Lord, which means they weren't relying upon their eloquence. They weren't relying on their presentation of the gospel. They weren't relying on their ability to answer that person's every question. They were speaking the truth out of love and concern for those people. And the Bible says God was working through them and testifying to the word of his grace. That's what we're talking about. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about grace. He is grace personified, undeserved favor. And so we have the good news that Jesus saves and satisfies people who don't deserve to be saved and satisfied. In God. Well, it goes on in Acts 16. You might remember the story of the Philippian jailer, where he says in verses 30 uh, through 32, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say, Paul and Silas, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And it says, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all those who were in his house. When they say, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. That's not all they said. That's just a summary. That's the heart of what they said. Because it says they spoke the word to them. Which means, you know, it may take some time. You may need to explain the gospel to people. It's not just about, you know, um, throwing out verses and or just throwing out statements and assuming that, well, I, I told you the gospel. It may mean... Sometimes the Holy Spirit may fall just like it did with Peter. Sometimes you may just need to walk people through what the truth is. And the encouraging thing is God works as we do that, as we are committed to holding on to the truth ourselves and giving it to others. Um, There are other verses that highlight the same kind of thing. a real funny situation in the book of Acts is actually in Acts 20, verses 7 through 12. It's funny for us preachers because that's the story of um, Eutychus. Uh, Eutychus was a young man who was sitting on a window, a uh, windowsill while Paul is preaching. And Paul is preaching into the night. He's preaching up until midnight. And the young man falls out the window and dies. And Paul runs down, uh, falls on top of him, and raises him from the dead. 
and continues his sermon. <laughs> and he preaches until daylight. And so it says, um, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, seeking, sinking into a deep sleep, which comforts me as a preacher that that does happen even to Paul. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. Paul knew that the most important thing he could do for them was to give them the apostles' teaching. And even if he had to raise them from the dead so that they could hear it, he was going to do it. The most important thing that they needed, even if it kept them up all night. And sometimes we get a little impatient when the service goes five minutes long. Um, But we need to be careful of that. Not that we as leaders don't need to be sensitive to people's time. We try to be. But we need to make sure that we know what's really important, that we know what we really need. And we need the word of God. We need the teaching of the apostles. Another interesting thing is in Acts chapter 20, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders and he's telling them, I'm not going to see you again. And that really bothers them. They cry. But it says in Acts 20, Paul says to them, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What is Paul saying there? I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which means you're going to be okay without me. Why? Because God's still going to be with you and you have the truth you need. I've taught you well. You just need to believe it. You need to hang on to it. You need to proclaim it. You're going to be okay. I commend you to the truth, to the word of his grace. Well, let me conclude with... um, Just five questions here that are helpful in light of what we've been talking about this morning. You could say these are five questions that everyone needs to answer and in a sense does answer in their lifetime. One question is the question of God. Who or what will you worship and serve? That's a question that you and I are going to have to answer. Who or what will you serve? Who will be your God? Secondly, is the question of guilt. What will you do with your guilt? All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but what will we do with that guilt? The third question is a question about good. What will be the ultimate good that you think will satisfy you? What will you look to to truly satisfy your soul? What is the ultimate good that you're pursuing Fourthly, what is your goal in life? What will be your goal each and every day? What are you living for? Then finally, the question of your guide. What will be your guide to answer those four questions? About God, about guilt, about good, and about goal. What will be your guide to answer those questions? My encouragement is 
to do as the believers in Acts did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, believing that in that teaching they had the answers that they needed to all those very, very important questions. Um, There's a guy named Frank Peretti that I've talked about before who um, uses an illustration that I've also used before where he takes a chair and he says, imagine yourself in a dark room and the lights obviously are down and you can't see anything, but you know there's a chair there. But you don't know about anything else that's in that room. And he says that the only way that you can prevent yourself from becoming disoriented in that dark room is if you explore the room by keeping touch one way or the other to that chair. So you might want to find out what's in that dark room and try to understand the dark room that you're living in, but he says you can't really do that unless you have a fixed point of reference to orient yourself. It's just one imperfect illustration of the idea that we need a fixed point of reference in a dark room. Peter could say in 2 Peter 1, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So, The word of God, the teaching of the apostles, the New Testament especially, which confirms the Old Testament, is that lamp in a dark world filled with lies. That's the idea of darkness, filled with lies inside and outside the professing church. It says in Psalm 119, 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. How do you keep from becoming disoriented and deceived in a world filled with lies? You make sure that you're holding tightly to a fixed point of reference. And God says that his word, the apostles' teaching, is firmly fixed. It will not be moved. My encouragement for us is to prepare for whatever is to come by being devoted more and more to the apostles' teaching. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time in your word this morning. We thank you for the encouragement of your word, that it is a word of grace, that it is a proclamation of Jesus, that it is that which sets us free from lies. It is that which you use to give us life, and to grant us the strength we need for whatever we go through. And I pray that you would grow our commitment to speaking and holding on to the truth of the gospel, the the teaching of the apostles, that we might overcome whatever temptations of pleasure or whatever trials of suffering that we might encounter. And we thank you that you've promised to be with us. And I thank you that We can commend one another to you and to the word of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.